and welcome. This is Maraid Painter, your host of Your Care, Your Rights, Your Voice. I want to welcome Toby Edelman and Cinnamon St. John. First, I'll introduce Toby. Toby Edelman is a senior policy attorney at the Center for Medicare Advocacy. So Toby, I don't know if you can give me a little background on your role there and how you became the senior policy, one of the senior policy attorneys. Okay, thank you, Mairead. Happy to be with you today. Um, I joined uh, the Center for Medicare Advocacy in 2000 when we opened the Washington DC office. And I was working on nursing home issues before then at the National Senior Citizens Law Center, now called Justice and Aging, since 1977. So I've been spending a long time on nursing home issues and policy advocacy in Washington, D.C. for residents. Wow, absolutely. And, and thank you for all of the work that you've done. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. We've we've had some interviews with other individuals from the center. So this is just additional information. You guys are a wealth of information and really supportive of all the work that we do with our long-term care residents. Um, with that note, I want to introduce Cinnamon. So Cinnamon, if you want to give us a little explanation about what you do and how you support the work at the center. Absolutely. So hi, my name is Cinnamon St. John. I am the Triplin Medicare and Health Policy Fellow at the Center for Medicare Advocacy. I work a lot with Toby on long-term care issues, specializing in the nursing home. And I also focus on health equity issues for the center. How I got to the center to become the Chiplin uh, Fellow, it was a very personal journey for me. I was actually, um, before this, I was the Associate Director of the Hartford Institute for Geriatric Nursing at NYU. We, we focused a lot on um, ensuring older adults get the best care possible, uh, largely through an education platform and also through grants and working in the community. At that time, I was also a Health and Aging Policy Fellow, and I was working uh, with the Senate Special Committee on Aging uh, around the time that COVID hit. And uh, I lived in New York City at the time. And in March, 2020, we were all sequestered to our own homes. And I was researching everything you can research about COVID-19. And this was the time when the issues around nursing homes um, were was really exploding. And what I saw was so horrifying and so tragic that I couldn't turn away. And it was at that time that I realized that I needed to focus full-time on the issues around nursing homes and residents' rights. And I was lucky enough to connect with Toby at the time. Wow, thank you so much. And I appreciate you both being here today. And we've had the opportunity to talk throughout the pandemic and work on some issues um, together and really promote some best practices of what's happening here in Connecticut and across the nation. And that's what we're gonna talk a little bit about today. We're gonna talk about issues related to residents' rights and really how that has been impacted over the past 18 months. And one of the rights that I really wanted to focus on was related to visitation and having access to loved ones in long-term care settings. Um, we have a lot of momentum now here in our state and across the country due to the focus um, that we've been able to, to draw to this concern and really having our national leaders pay attention to the impact um, to older adults and individuals with disabilities living in long-term care communities when you don't find that healthy balance between the medical and social and emotional needs. So I wanna ask each of you, what are you seeing and maybe what do you feel is the biggest concern right now related to residents' rights at a national level and related to visitation? 
Well, one concern I think we have is that we understand that families aren't just friendly visitors. They're really critical to residents' psychological well-being and also to the care they receive. Residents and their families are a team and families are very, very important in making sure that residents actually get the care they need when they're present in the facility, they can call on staff if, if their family member needs something. Um, but psychologically, they're, they're there for, for their residents. And it's, we also know that um, they've been a, an essential part of the regulatory system. Many families are the ones who make the most significant complaints to the state survey agency, telling the state about problems when the states go out and investigate those complaints from families, that's where many of the most serious problems are identified. So we know that families and residents have suffered from the isolation, and we know that a number of residents have died from loneliness and failure to thrive during the pandemic, not from the pandemic at all, but from being isolated. And we just can't really allow that to happen again or to continue to happen now as the public health emergency continues. I think it's interesting in the sense of residents in nursing homes have been paying the price for this pandemic in so many ways. First, you have the pandemic and the extraordinary loss and uh, loss of lives um, in the facilities. And then at the same time, you have what we're talking about where an epidemic of loneliness has been created and it's been incredibly destructive. Before the pandemic, we were talking about social isolation in nursing homes and saying that social isolation has the impact of 15 cigarettes a day on the body. But now what we're seeing is so much worse. It's in a new category. Um, at the time when we had the lockdown, you know, these, these measures were made in good faith. We didn't know what we didn't know, but now we do. And I think now is the time where it's imperative that we correct what went wrong the first time. And that is with this essential caregivers bill, what we have the opportunity to do. I think it's very important on two different levels. One, when you look at it from the resident point of view and from the caregiver point of view, um, when you look at it, the most conservative estimate out there as far as the number of people in a nursing home that has dementia from the CDC is 48%. I've seen figures that go up to 70%. But at the very minimum, we know basically half of the people in nursing homes have some form of dementia. Now, my mother died in 2020 of Alzheimer's, so I'm, I'm intimately aware of the challenges that, that come along with dementia. Um, you need a lot of time and you need a lot of familiarity with the person. For that person to feel comfortable, to not get agitated, there's a lot of night wandering. So what those residents with dementia need are love, familiarity, and time. And time is a resource. And right now, our nursing facilities are low on resources, right? Because we have this challenge with the staffing issues. And high staff turnover. So we don't have enough staff. They don't have enough time for the residents. And those, especially with dementia, need someone who knows them, who can help them. And then when we talk about resources, even if you don't have dementia, having a family caregiver, having a caregiver who knows you and who comes and helps you do the things that maybe the staff don't have time to do, helps the staff. So for me, this is a win-win situation all around. And, and I would like to counter, you know, sometimes you hear, well, during a pandemic, during a public health emergency, we have to keep as many people out to keep the staff, to keep the staff and the residents safe, to keep everyone safe. Um, but I would like to say that for those who have a loved one in need, 
if my mother, still alive, were in a nursing home, I would do everything I can to stay safe myself to make sure my mother stays safe. I currently live with my father. He has multiple autoimmune disease issues. He also has diabetes. And I am a person who does not take risk in any form because I don't want to take the chance of potentially harming my father. So I think those people who have a connection with their loved ones in the facility will do what is needed to do, be done to, to take those precautions needed to keep them safe. Thank, those are all great points, and I, I couldn't agree more. We understand that this isn't just a challenge that we've seen here in our state, that this has been across the country in all types of long-term care settings, from um, settings that have young adults that may be facing a disability to long-term care nursing homes and assisted living communities. So we've heard from many, many residents and family members out there, and that's one of the reasons why we all started working together to pass a national bill that would provide protections that wouldn't be able to be waived. And so that's bill 3733. And I was thankful to be able to go to Washington DC earlier this year with both of you. Um, and we know that there's some momentum there. We want this to be a bipartisan bill and we want people to be reaching out to our national leaders to talk to them about why this is so important. Um, but we know we need more energy around that. I don't think anyone prior to this pandemic had any idea how much unpaid support was happening in long-term care communities by family members. And although we were having some staffing challenges prior to the pandemic, we weren't feeling the pains of that yet because, you know, people were there. And although it is seen as a visit, I mean, you've both reflected on the fact it's not really a visit, right? It's it's that support. It's that interaction. It's helping the individual, non-medical interventions. I'm you know, there was a recent article, I don't know if you guys saw it um, late this weekend about um, the use of antipsychotic and psychotropic meds for older adults and individuals um, who maybe never had a diagnosed reason before to be on such medication. And so we're really questioning why that's happening. And if that's also related to mm-hmm. other individuals not being in the communities. You know, I mean, Toby's done so much work. I, I can express a personal thought on that. Um, I the same thing happened with my mother. She, you know, towards the end of her life with her dementia, she had, she stopped eating. So she was hospitalized and at home, we took care of her so we can take care of her walking in the night. And, you know, it just takes so much time to keep her still because when you have dementia, being still is very hard unless you're sleeping. And she went into the hospital and she slept and she slept like she's never slept before. And when she came out, she was not the same. And she died a couple of weeks later, you know? And so I think this is a critical, critical issue that there needs to be a lot more attention around. And Toby's done a lot of work on this. Well, the antipsychotic drugs have been a problem for a very, very long time in this country. Even in the seventies, the Senate Special Committee on Aging had hearings about inappropriate use of drugs. I think we saw a big shift Uh, when the nursing home reform law was passed, and it was understood that that was prohibiting physical restraints. People could not be tied down anymore. And what nursing homes, it's a, a, 
chemical restraints are, and physical restraints are in large part a response to understaffing. There's not enough staff, and so facilities will use the restraints. They knew they couldn't use physical restraints anymore. There was so much attention in the early 90s, and so chemical restraints became the substitute, and especially because there was a new type of uh, uh, psychotropic drugs, uh, antipsychotic drugs called atypical antipsychotics, which were promoted as um, not having any side effects, which of course was not true. But um, you know that it was—it's a secret kind of restraint. You can't really see the chemical restraint. You can see the results, but you don't see that that's happening. And sometimes drugs are very important. Um, the drugs that they're using, the antipsychotics, are critically important for people who have a real psychosis, not this. Uh, diagnosed when you're 85 years old for the first time with schizophrenia, which is not appropriate and highly unusual. Yeah, terrible what the New York Times documented. Uh, We've seen research talking about that as well. But they're not appropriate for people who do not have a a real psychosis uh, for, you know, people who've been getting these drugs all their lives might, might be helpful for them, but for, maybe not, but for other people, absolutely not. And the Food and Drug Administration says, there's a black box warning, these drugs will kill you. They are really dangerous. Uh, There's something called the beers list of drugs that should not be given to older people. Antipsychotics are on that list. They should not be given to people with dementia. So it's an issue we've been struggling with for a very, very long time. And we're thankful that the New York Times exposed it yet again. Absolutely. I know for my program, many times we would find out about something like that by a family member or a friend, a caregiver that began visiting and recognizing changes in presentation. They would call because they would say someone didn't look right. They were very groggy, um, maybe experiencing falls. And so without that level of intervention, right, they, I feel like when we have the ability to have people in and traditionally seeing individuals um, that know them, that's when we get the best feedback. And without that, I'm concerned that many of those um, opportunities have now been missed and then if we don't start to have that meaningful contact moving forward, we're going to continue to miss that. Um, and the, the minimum data set, which is done as part of the care plan, was paused where we get that information as well. So I'm, I'm nervous about that period of time during COVID that there's going to be a real gap in data and information. And we saw with eyes on individuals. So thank you for that. Also related to having loved ones in, I'm not sure which one of you, one of you brought up failure to thrive and that you know, we may see individuals that really give up due to the time in isolation. And they were isolated in their rooms due to a directive, um, I think that was meant to protect them. We've heard a lot about protecting people to death and they kept them safe from COVID, but what else happened? Um, I don't know if you wanna reflect a little bit on the failure to thrive and that it's not normal just because someone is an older adult or maybe has a memory care diagnosis that we should expect for them to stop eating, to stop interacting, to stop talking. No, that's absolutely correct. These things are not supposed to happen. This is not normal aging. Something acute is happening to people and it needs to, they need to be addressed. Those problems need to be addressed. Um, You know, this is such a change from the normal pattern of federal and state law. Since 1987, the federal nursing home reform law has said that families 
can visit 24 hours a day. They're, they're, whatever, whenever they, the residents want to see their family members, they can come in. Um, you know, I remember hearing about a son who was a truck driver and he could only come in in the middle of the night. That was when he would be available. And the facility figured out a way to make sure that his mother could see him at two in the morning. She, you know, they made sure that it wasn't interrupting his, her roommate's sleep, but there was a special place where the mother could see her son. That has been the law. And it's only because of the public health emergency that we've had this ban on people coming in. And I think the government had did it with the best of intentions at the beginning, and it might've made sense at the beginning. But what we know um, is how to avoid COVID. We know the vaccinations, the masks, all the things that needed to be done um, and to be done now, um, it made this ban on admissions not meaningful anymore. Because the only people bringing COVID in are staff members. And so families really need to be back in the facilities seeing their loved ones. Just has to happen. Great. I'm curious, uh, being the long-term care ombudsman for Connecticut, can you describe some of your experiences on what it was like being in your position during the lockdown uh, with the pandemic and not being able to have the access you need? It, it was incredibly hard for my team members and I, where we know normally we are out immediately once we get a call. Our whole role is to go directly to the person. It really shut down our ability to work as in partnership with the individual to help support them in understanding what their rights are and identifying when there's concerns and helping their voice be heard both um, to family members as well as to their care providers. And I think that was a key component that was lost. Um, and for a long time, we didn't even have the Department of Public Health able to go in other than for infection control reasons. And so when there were issues, complaints, concerns that would normally be addressed very quickly, people were lingering and waiting for long periods of time um, in those situations. And so that was really hard for us and to watch someone decline or to get the calls from staff. We had a lot of staff members that were calling saying, we can't give these individuals the care that we, we want to be able to give them. There's not enough of us here to provide the support. There are some individuals that need a lot of nutritional support, coaching through meals to um, be able to finish, to go slowly. And it may take an hour. And if you only have two aides on for 30 residents, that they can't do that. And so that's yeah. where family members often had been supplementing right? They would go in, they'd sit with a loved one, they would talk with them. It would be social interaction, emotional support, and on the medical side, nutritional support. You know, for my mother, what you're saying strikes me with my mother. I mean, she, she stopped wanting to brush her teeth and that's a tough one, right? Um, it was, it was really stressful. And so what I created was the, the toothbrush dance party and we turned it into a dance party and she loved it. And she started brushing her teeth. But, you know, you're not going to get a, you know, that's not the job of a direct care worker, per se, to create a dance party. That's why you need your caregivers and your loved ones to come in and help make your life a little easier in that sense and get your teeth brushed. Absolutely. And that's something we keep hearing. I keep hearing, even now today, the thing mm -hmm. that is really bothering family members is the one they don't know if residents are getting the the food support and the hydration support, but it's also the brushing of the teeth, seeing someone with their hair brushed, earrings on, um, shaved, put together in a way that 
provides dignity and in a way that they always would have presented themselves. And when you have um, those gaps and then also staffing challenges, this is what we're seeing. I think people take the word and the right to visitors very lightly. Like, oh, I visit with my friends. I visit with um, people when we go out to happy hour or to dinner. Yeah. This is not a traditional idea of a visit. This is a essential component of someone's life to keep them well. Do we need to redefine the word visit? Maybe I think we do. Come right. up with another term. A different word. A different yeah. word for what people right? need. It's well, not, and, yeah. Oh. I had advocated that a little bit at, with my family members in my state. And I know, you know, it was hard because at a federal level, people had started to move forward with essential caregivers, but we really defined it here as an essential support person, that this person's support as, is as essential as the CNA, the nurse, the doctor that's prescribing the medication. And without that level of support, the person is not going to be able to succeed. Um, and so I really want to thank both of you for all of the work that you've done on that. I'm interested to know what you think is one of the most important components moving forward that we need to do to make sure that the continuum of long-term care helps to support these individuals and that we don't see rights stall out here. I'm really afraid that if we don't really highlight what's happening, that people might say, oh, well, we can stop visitation at no visits after 8 p.m. And we'll never get back to, um, Toby, what you were speaking about, the nursing home reform laws. Um, and you are a legend in everything that you've done throughout history in our nation to make these things um, happen and be in place. And I'm just worried we're not going to get back there. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a very serious concern. We've had these waivers from the public health emergency since March of 2020, and they're becoming the new norm, the new normal of how nursing homes operate, and they can't be. We need these waivers of longstanding statutory regulatory protections. We need them, we need the waivers lifted to go back to the normal of what was the law since 1990. That's been the law of the land. And we, we can't just act as if these changes are um, acceptable and a, a new normal. I had a lawnmower going. We'll pause for a second. It is funny. I keep saying you'll see on the podcast post that the dog is now like my, um, they have Finn listed as my co-host because yeah. you, you can't take out all the dog barking. They're both being good today. But I was like, we're doing this in our homes. This is real life. I'm not going to pretend I'm in some studio somewhere. This is like. This is how I it is. So people get I know. think it's good. I think it's good. People like it. You know, people like it. This is the real world. It's it okay. It is. And we need to have real people living in the real world and stop with all this BS phony stuff. So Toby, I don't know if you can give us a little bit of information on how you think these waivers and the impact of not having visitation restored might impact the continuum moving forward and long-term. Well, I'm very concerned that the waivers that were imposed in March 2020 at the beginning of the public health emergency are becoming the new normal, and they really can't be. We have to go back to what the law was enacted in 1987, went into effect in 1990, that gives residents all kinds of rights and protections. We need to go back to that. That, that should be the law again, as quickly as possible. And certainly, even as the public health emergency continues now, we need to recognize the importance of families being present as essential caregivers. 
we can't allow facilities to lock down again because we know how dangerous this has been to residents uh, not being able to see their family members. Absolutely. And Cinnamon, any thoughts on that? I think, it, I think it's really important that we do not repeat the mistakes that we have made. Um, we are, we're at a, a dividing line now where we can either have meaningful reform and, and not repeat the mistakes or go the past of, path of least resistance, which I'm, I'm concerned that we're heading down that road in the sense of we'll make minor tweaks here and there and enough to silence the majority or the, loud, the loudest voices in the room, but the real meaningful reform that needs to happen so that we don't have this kind of tragedy that we've seen in our nursing homes repeat itself. It's challenging. The whole situation is challenging because the issues in nursing homes are complex and they're interrelated. You know, one is related to the other, the staffing issue, not having enough staffing for the resident care and also the pay for the direct care workers um, is related to a lot of other issues. And I was reading a book this morning written in the 1970s about nursing homes. And what was said was direct care workers do 90% of the work that are in nursing homes. And yet they are paid so little. How can nursing home administrators be surprised by the high rate of turnover? And that was almost 50 years ago. Wow. So my concern for the next two, three years, I am, let's just say I have concern and we need more voices out there. I think how the essential caregivers bill kind of came about with the grassroots mm -hmm. movement, yeah. having the voices of the people who are directly impacted, that matters critically. And I think we are at an important junction where we need those people to speak louder, double the efforts, because this is when it is needed. Thank you. All, you know, all good I points. think yes. another, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. I have concern also about what's happening to the oversight system during the pandemic. Uh, I've read a number of articles and reports that uh, the survey agency, the health department, that really is supposed to be advocates for residents, make sure residents are getting what the law says they're supposed to get and what they need on an individual basis. The surveyors from the health department were acting as consultants, consultants to the nursing home industry, helping them, teaching them how to wash their hands, teaching them how to do infection prevention and control. And I've seen articles where, where the nursing home industry says, uh, we'd like that consulting role. We want that to continue. We're very concerned that the health department, when the, when the health department goes out to look at the facility, they should be making sure that the facility is doing what it's required to do, what it's paid to do, that residents are getting all the care, all the services they need. And they won't get that if the surveyors are consultants. The 1987 reform law said, no, not consultants. This is an oversight agency. It is to cite deficiencies and enforce the standards that exist. There are plenty of other people to be consultants. So I'm quite concerned about that shift, that, that mind shift in health departments. And I don't, I don't want that to continue. Those are, that's a great point, Toby. I, I will say here, um, I think that that trend started where because of the constant flow of information that had to happen, but I was pleased with our Department of Public Health that the um, 
individuals in management positions there really said, no, we are not here to tell the nursing homes what to do. You need to figure it out. We can tell you whether or not it's been done correctly, but we are not here to do that. We can tell you what the guidance is. So I, I was happy to see that. Two of my concerns related to what you each have brought up is that both for here in Connecticut, our public health um, team members and what we call FLIS, which is the facility licensing um, component of our Department of Public Health and in the nursing homes, we have, I would say, almost half of the staff is new. They're new to either the agency, they're new to long-term care. And so they've never worked in this industry during a time when residents' rights were fully um, in place. Their norm is to know visitation this way and to um, hold back and to have um, limitations. And so I, I am blessed to have started in long-term care in, oh gosh, 1992 was when I worked in the first nursing home that I've ever worked in. And I grew up in an era right after all of those reform laws just came into place and we had the Pioneer Network and we had um, all kinds of better life initiatives and person-centered care plans were just starting. And that impacted the way that I um, developed as a long-term care um, professional. And I'm just really concerned that other individuals coming in during a time when there are all of these restrictions and um, we know better than you know, and I'm going to tell you versus you telling us that that's going to change and form the way these professionals think about their relationship with the residents, with family members, and really looking at them as individual. Yeah. And I agree with you. And the word that jumped out with what you said was relationship, because this you know, to have person-centered care, you need a two-way relationship or between the resident and I'll, I'll, I'll lump in the caregiver, the support person with the, the nurse and the direct care worker. You know, it needs to be an interplay and, and, and truly getting to know people. Um, and that's partly what's so sad with um, the whole issue around pay with staff, because when you have this high turnover, when there is no incentive to stay, there this relationship cannot be built. You know, you're going to be getting this issue you've seen over and over and over again, which is these new new aids, because we're not keeping the people who are there. Absolutely, it should be a care team, right? It shouldn't be sort of top down. It should be that team with the person at the center of the team coaching what they how they need those people on their team to support them and getting to the outcomes and the goals that they have. Well, I thank you both for being here today. I don't know if you wanna tell us a little bit about the center, the way that the center can support individuals either in long-term care or trying to make a decision about going into long-term care and then some contact information so that people can reach out and get the support that they need. Well, the center works uh, very closely with people in Connecticut. Our Connecticut office actually represents people directly in appeals of Medicare coverage, but we do a lot of training for people, for the healthcare professionals, and for families, for people who care about uh, nursing home issues and Medicare issues in general. We have an enormous amount of material on our website, medicareadvocacy.org, that's free. There are a lot of self-help materials if people want to represent their, their parents, their friends, their loved ones in an administrative appeal, tells them exactly what to do, 
how to do it. We also work on policy issues at the state and federal level, trying to make sure that the laws and regulations are good for Medicare beneficiaries and those they love. And finally, we do litigation of national importance. So we do a whole range of activities and we try to make as much available for people as possible for free on our website. So I encourage people to go there and call us. And I think what's special about the Center for Medicare Advocacy is that exactly what Toby said, you know, one of our primary foundations is education. And we educate older adults and people with disabilities on how to access and get that necessary care they need. And then we take our interactions and knowledge of what's happening on the ground and educate policymakers to help them understand how their decisions impact those exact people. Um, that's really special and really needed. And, and, and if I could just add one more thing, um, is that we're, we also are really focusing on racial and ethnic minority uh, disparities and health equity. Uh, with the pandemic, that has been another issue that's really jumped out as um, needing, needing help and needing attention. Well, thank you. Thank you both for all of the work that you do and for the partnership with our program and long-term care ombudsman programs across the country. And if individuals have questions or concerns um, here in Connecticut, you can contact us at the Connecticut Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. Our phone number is 1-866-388-1888. Or you can look us up. You can Google the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program in Connecticut. There are ombudsman programs in every state. So if you're listening and you're not in Connecticut, please Google the um, ombudsman program in your state. Also, I want to thank people that have um, written to us and let me know topics of interest that you've wanted to hear about on the podcast. I encourage you to continue to listen and continue to um, write me, give me ideas and tell me what's important to you for us to cover related to your care, your rights and your voice. Thanks for being here today and we'll talk to you soon.